You can turn over in your, your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. And, uh, John, I don't know if you can knock that uh, thermostat down a couple notches. I'd appreciate it. <laughs> if it's not on or if it's on or whatever. Um, Matthew chapter 26. We're looking at the um, last final Passover that Jesus had with his disciples. And this is a uh, very significant uh, portion of Scripture in simply because it's, it's his last evening alive. It's last night. This is Thursday evening. Remember, we went through all this last week. He's giving his, doing his preparation to go and die on the cross. And chapter 26 is devoted to preparing the Savior for the cross. And um, he's done a lot of groundwork that's got us to this point, and we find ourselves today actually in Matthew chapter 26, verse 20. But I just want to remind you, last week we looked at the necessity for uh, sacrifice. It was laid down in the Old Testament. The purpose and the goal and the objective, the climax really of Jesus Christ's life was none other than his sacrificial death. Um, One writer said, the death of Jesus Christ is not the end of the story, it is the theme of the story beginning to end. And that's a good way to put it. And we saw how sacrifice was a necessity. Sacrifice needed to be a blood sacrifice. And sacrifice also had to be substitutionary. Um, They always used a lamb. They didn't kill the people that sinned. They used a lamb to cover the sin. The same thing with Christ. And we began to look at the instructions that they were given in verses 17 to 19 of uh, Matthew chapter 26. And so I just want to read verses 17 through 30, and uh, we'll pick up our text there in verse 20 after a couple words of introduction. Beginning in verse 17, Now the first day of the unleavened, on the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples said to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city and a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand, and I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And that was Peter and John who left. The other um, uh, remained with Christ because it was important that Judas not know where this meeting was going to take place. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, you, one of you will betray me. Verse 22, and they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after the other, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be, have been better for that man that he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they sang a hymn, hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
Last week, we looked a little bit of the preparation. We looked at the, the meal, how there was four cups of wine, diluted wine with water, so they didn't get drunk. It wasn't the kind of wine we drink today. It's not as um, alcoholic as that. But we see here that Jesus met with his disciples, and he sent two of them away to prepare the Passover, and we talked all about that last week and what the significance of that was. But today, I want us to to pick up on verse 20. Now remember, it's Thursday night. It's probably late in the evening. And they're preparing this Passover meal, which has a lot of symbolism in it. And there was a certain way that they did it. And uh, all the, the things that we talked about last week concerning the Passover meal are important and they're symbolic. And uh, you need to understand all that. But here we go. This morning we start out in verse 20. It says, When it was evening, later in the evening... It says he reclined at the table with the twelve. And this is just to give you a little bit of background here. Uh, When they would eat the Passover meal, in the Old Testament it says they were instructed in Exodus that they should eat so, do so standing. Because it was a Passover meal and they were, they could be called to flight at any moment. So they were to eat this meal standing and they did that for a period of time. But over the years, you know, there was no need of the necessity of that ability to get away quickly. So, because they were no longer in Egypt and all that stuff, and, and, and that had all passed. And so they grew accustomed to leaning down, usually on their left elbow, around a kind of an oblong table, and they would recline, and they would lean on their left elbow, and they would eat with their right hand. That's how they eat over there. They didn't have forks and things like that. And so it says he reclined with the twelve. And he did so. And you've got to remember, when they would do that, um, you know, they just came in from a day of walking around all over the place. Remember, Wednesday was a, a very uh, long day. And Thursday is, is just, you know, the same. And they, they didn't have the ability to just go and take a shower. So when they would recline, usually you would recline and, and you would uh, sometimes have people's feet in proximity of your face. And you know what that means. So if you, Matthew doesn't tell us this, but at a certain point in this supper, at the, they began the supper, they all got there, they got every, Peter and John had everything prepared for them, they got to this man's house, Judas was there, he didn't know where it was going to be, or he would have had the soldiers take him by force there. But he didn't know where it was going to be, that was all that we looked at last week. But, the important thing is to know that when they got together, part of the, the Passover meal, with, without getting into a whole bunch of detail, was part of the, the leader, who was Jesus in this case, would have a kind of a ceremonial washing before he would break the bread, before he'd handle the elements and things like that. And they would do the ceremonial washing. Well, John, over in the Gospel of John, the same account tells us that at a certain point in the meal here, Matthew doesn't give us this detail, but John does, that Jesus actually washed their feet as well as washing his own hands. And maybe that's because they didn't do it when they got there. Generally, in the custom of the day, the culture, the person who was the owner of the house, when they came in, they would have a bowl there, and you would dip your feet in it and kind of do a little washing before you'd parade into their house because they just wore sandals. So you can imagine their feet were dirty and dusty and everything, and they would have that. Well, apparently nobody took care of that. Peter and John didn't think of that. The other disciples didn't think of that. And so, here we are at this dinner table, and 
they didn't do the proper washing up they should have done. And John tells us that at a certain point in the meal, they kind of stopped the meal, and Jesus began to wash their feet, which was totally unheard of. I mean, that just, you know, wasn't a normal thing to do for a, a teacher, a master, a rabbi to do to those disciples around him. And so this is the, the setting in which we find ourselves in verse 20. He was reclining at the table with the twelve. In verse 21 it says, And as they were eating, okay, they already started the meal. They didn't eat, get to the lamb yet. The lamb was the important part. When it came to the lamb, you had to eat the whole lamb. You couldn't leave any left over till morning. So they would eat in the wee hours of the morning, making sure that none was left over. It says, And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say, to you, speaking to his disciples, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. One of you will, that word means to give over, will turn me over to my enemies. That's basically what he's saying. As a prisoner would turn over, uh, as a guard would turn a prisoner over to a prison for punishment. Now, remember, culturally, when you sat down with somebody in that part of the country and you had a meal with them, that meant a lot. You were bonded to that person. It wasn't just, you know, hey, how you don't know. You were establishing a relationship, a friendship with that person. And so here we find them having this, this meal together, and Jesus is pointing to the 12 disciples and says, one of you will, is going to turn me over to the enemy. One of you is going to turn me over to the religious leaders. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now whenever Jesus said anything, the disciples always listened because they figured out after a period of three years when he said something, he meant what he said, and he spoke the truth. So they didn't laugh and say, oh yeah, right, Jesus, we would, no, 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 no. They they took this very seriously, this almost a charge that Jesus was making to them. And that's why in verse 22 it says, they were very sorrowful, sorrowful, they were cut to their hearts. They couldn't believe what Jesus was telling them. They just really couldn't even believe it. And they began to say to him, one after the other, is it I? And you say, well, what were they doing that for? You know, in a way, part of Matthew here leaves out a big portion of what's going on here. Remember, they're they're getting into a kind of an argument at this point in the meal, a little before this. And Jesus kind of has to, um, you might say, rebuke them. Why? Look over to the Gospel of John, chapter 13, and we find out. Just follow along as I read this account of what happens in John 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, that's the Passover meal, uh, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, it speaks of the sovereignty of God, we looked at that last week, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. And he laid aside his outer garments, and he took a towel, and he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel, which was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? 
I mean, he was really appalled at this. And Jesus answered, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but after, afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Isn't it funny how Peter makes these statements? God, well, you will never do this. I will never do that. We used to call him Pendulumic Peter. On one hand, he's ready to give up his life. The next minute, he's telling the Lord exactly what to do or what not to do. He goes from one to the other, swings back and forth in his faith. Some of us do that at times. He says, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus answered, he says, what I'm doing you don't understand. Verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. In other words, if you're not humble enough to understand what I'm trying to do for you, you don't have any part with me. Jesus and Simon Peter said to him, well, Lord, not my feet only, because he wanted to be part with Jesus, but my hands and my head. In other words, give me a whole shower. Lord, do the whole thing. And Jesus said, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet, he put on their outer garments And resumed his place. And he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. Verse 14, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, he always said that when he's making a point, when it's something important, truly, truly. It's like, pay attention, listen to what I'm saying. Verse 16, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. See, that was a a cultural thing. You dare not go to somebody's house and eat eat dinner with them and then somehow attack them, whether by name or by action, behind their back, because you established a relationship with that person. It would be like having you over for dinner and as you're walking out the door, yeah, see you later, don't let the door hit you on the way out. As soon as you leave, boy, we just start chatting it up. What a bunch of idiots they were. Never invite them again. You know, that wouldn't be right. We wouldn't be your friends. We would be your enemies. And see, it was hard to understand in that society what was going on around that table when Jesus said, one of you will betray me. The disciples couldn't really understand what he was saying. And he says there in verse 19, I am telling you this now before it takes place, because Jesus knew everything before it took place, because he's God, he's omniscient, he knows everything about everybody. He knows what's in your heart right now as you're sitting here listening to me teach the word. He knows whether you're concentrating on the word or you're thinking about what you're going to eat for dinner or lunch or what you've got to do at work Monday morning. He knows all that. You can't fool God. He just can't. He knows exactly what's in your heart. And by the way, he knows exactly what's in mine. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, that you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one 
I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And look at, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. He was the closest one to Jesus at this point. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus, well, who's he speaking about? I mean, they're all kind of shrugging their stories, their shoulders going, what's going on here? So that disciple, John, leaned back against Jesus and said to him, Lord, who is it? Who's going to turn you over? Verse 26, Jesus answered, it is he who, whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now, we read that here in, in John, but you have to understand in Matthew and in the other accounts, it says, he who you know, eats the bread that I've dipped into this cup. Well, you have to understand they all did. See, after this, they all didn't look at Judas and go, you're the one. They didn't do that because they were all eating from the same cup. It was a common kind of feast. This wasn't like a signal to the rest of them. He's the one, get him. No, that's probably what would have happened if you stop and think about it, if you had 11 loyal disciples and you had one betrayer, what's the rest, what are the other 11 going to do after the betrayers ratted out? They're probably going to string them up. Well, what would happen if they strung Judas up and didn't allow him to go do what he was going to do? See, that wasn't part of God's plan. See, God is in charge of all this. He's in charge of all this. And you say, well, then is Judas responsible for what he did? Look at what it says here. It says, verse, uh, middle verse 26, So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. See, up to this point, Jesus was constantly, constantly reaching out to Judas. Even though he knew what was going to happen, he was constantly giving Judas the opportunity to repent. Given Judas the opportunity to acknowledge that he was the Savior. Right up until the last moment. Amazing. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I knew somebody, even within our church, was stabbing me in the back week after week, it would be very hard for me to restrain myself from going and confronting that person, knowing that's what they're doing. That would be hard. And yet, Jesus, because he's God, had all his faculties constantly in control. So he allowed this whole thing to play out. So he looks at Judas and he says, what you're going to do, do it quickly. Just go do it. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. They didn't say, oh, he's the one. No, they didn't know that. Some thought that because Judas was, had the money bag, he was the treasurer, which is an amazing thing. The one deceitful person in the lot of twelve, he's the one and he's carrying the money around. That's not that's saying nothing about our current treasurer or people involved. That's not I'm not implying anything here. But you know what? It's amazing to me that his hypocrisy was so sincere. 
that even the disciples who were closest to Judas and closest to Jesus for these three some years, they didn't even think of him. They didn't stop and say, yeah, you know, he was gone the other day and he was, no, he had it perfect. I mean, he was the perfect hypocrite. He did everything the right way according to his hypocrisy. Verse 29, some thought that because he had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, well, go buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he, went, he immediately went out and it was night. Now, the one thing you have to understand in these different accounts of this meal, at a certain point, I believe it was even during the time when Jesus is washing their feet, the disciples get into an argument. And guess what they're arguing about? Who's greatest? Who's greatest? You know, and it seems like they couldn't avoid that subject amongst themselves. And, you know, in our flesh, we can kind of understand that. You're following this guy who's healing everybody in the whole uh, area of Israel over there. I mean, he basically banished sickness from the area with his, with his miraculous healing. He was um, teaching in ways that just confounded everybody. They were just blown away by his teaching. Thousands and thousands of people would follow them everywhere they went. I mean, I could see where they began to think a little bit bigger of themselves than maybe what they should have. But when you jump back into Matthew chapter 26, I think Jesus did the whole foot washing thing to give them a healthy dose of humility. So they understood that's what he did. He did it as an example of humility, not necessarily of washing feet. There's some people that believe, well, now we all need to wash everybody's feet. No, that's not what Jesus was doing. Culturally, that's just not what we do. But it was a sign of humility. And what Jesus is saying is we should all have humble hearts. We should all be willing to help each other. We, they, those disciples should have came into that room. One of the disciples should have said, hey, nobody's washing the feet. I need to go do it. But none of them did because they were too busy arguing who was the greatest. And so Jesus gets fed up with it. He girds himself and he washes the feet. And you notice that that happens somewhere here in this meal that's not, the details aren't given to us in Matthew chapter 26. And so as they were eating, they began to, to eat the, the meal, make the preparation for the meal here. Here, He talks about this be betraying, Jesus' betrayal. He talks about Jesus' betrayer, Judas in a way that's kind of stealthy. Nobody knows about really who he's talking about. And it's interesting to me that if you, if you jump back to Matthew 26, it says in verse 23, or verse 22, when they were all asking, is it I? That's why they were asking that, because he just rebuked them. <laughs> because they're arguing, who's going to be the greatest? So let me give you a little lesson in humility. I'm going to wash your feet, and you're going to sit there and watch me do this, and listen, it's going to be an example of you of humility because you obviously haven't learned that yet. 
even though you've spent three years with me, you still don't understand that concept, so I'm going to have to go over it with you again. And I think Jesus was, in a way, rebuking his own disciples at this point. And so when he said, hey, one of you is going to betray me, they weren't high and mighty anymore. They were honestly asking, Lord, is it I? They were really sincerely asking, could it be me? After my behavior, what, I, what you just told me I shouldn't be doing with all the pride and arguing over who's the greatest, could that be me? See, and that shows me that his disciples, even though they were with Christ 24-7 for, you know, three-some years. And yeah, they got a little big-headed at times. They thought a little more of themselves than maybe what they should have at times. And Jesus always had to keep them in their place. But you know what? They still had the reality that he was the rabbi. He was the teacher and they weren't. And that he was the one who was in power here. They weren't. And so when he said someone was going to betray him, they didn't argue with him. They just simply asked, wow, they were sorrowful. And they said, is it, is it, is it us? Is it me? And they went around one by one. Verse 23 says, he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Once again, that doesn't tell them anything because they were all dipping their bread in there. That's what they did. Verse 24, the son of man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. Stop there a second and think of that. The Son of Man goes as is written of him. In other words, this is all prophesied. Like we said last week, this isn't the bad end to a good story. It's not like Jesus did something wrong and lost control. And oh, then they came and crucified him, put him on a cross. No, that was his chief end in life. He, he came, he was born to die, basically. Die for the sins of the world. That's what the Bible says. But he says, woe to the man, to that man, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. For a variety of reasons. First of all, he wasn't open and honest about it. I mean, Judas had been going on now for a week, trying to scheme and trying to figure out, where are we going to do this? Where are we going to do this? Remember, it was a week ago, he came up with this plot to go and get the 30 pieces of silver and do all that. Make those plans. So it said that he was trying to plan this out. And that's why it was so important that Jesus didn't tell him where the, where the Passover meal was going to be. And it was very important that Jesus eat this last Passover meal and then the next die, he die as the Passover lamb for the sins of the world. So I go back to the question in verse 25 here. Look at what happens. It says it's better for that man not to even be born because of the knowledge that he had. You know, there's degrees of punishment in hell. It's not just a big, you know, one size fits all. <laughs> the Bible says there's different degrees of punishment in hell. And I think that one of the reasons, one of the ways that that's going to be discerned in the end is how much information have you been given? And what have you done with it? I mean, we all deserve hell, but if we've been given the information of the gospel, if we understand that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and life, and the only way, and, and he's the only way to heaven, and we rejected that, and we've heard that over and over and over, and we just keep on rejecting it. And our heart grows colder and colder and harder and harder. I think you're storing up abundant wrath in hell. Much more than others who maybe never even heard the gospel. 
So it says that in verse 25, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? You notice how religious people are always good with titles. And they're always, you know, they're just good at buttering you up. I mean, you know, they, they, they fly so far under the radar that this is the last person that anybody would think would do what he was about to do. Except Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. And he just says to him, Matthew tells us, yep, <laughs> you've said it. That's right. That's it. And that's all Matthew gives us of this betrayal. But it's important to understand that I think that that level of betrayal, to be able to hide it that well, there's definitely something satanic in that. Usually you can read through people. But you know what? There's a lot of religious people, I think, that fill our churches, that come to church every week. They sit in a pew. They carry their Bible. They read their Bible. They memorize verses. They pray before meals. They do all these things, pray in public before they eat their lunch or whatever. And, you know, and they, they, they come across very religious. People look at them and say, oh, yeah, look at that person. And yet it's even possible for them to be deceived. That's a hard truth. And that's why the Bible says, make sure of your salvation. Don't just trust in coming to church. Don't just trust in some feeling that you have at some worship conference or some worship song that makes you feel a certain way or this or that. No, don't don't focus on that. Focus on the facts. Focus on the fact that, you know what, Jesus died for you. Have you put your faith and trust in him? Have you trusted him? Have you given him your life? Just like Jesus' chief end in life was to die for the sins of the world, is it your chief end in life to die for Christ? Every day, that's what he says. He says, you want to be my disciple? Then take up your cross daily. Daily. That's not like once a week, folks. That's every day. That means every day when your little eyes open up and you hop out of bed. You know, you've heard people say, I hop out of bed and say, boy, this is going to be a glorious day. How can I make this the best day? Well, that's great if you're into that attitude stuff. But according to Jesus, you should wake up and say, you know what? How can I sacrifice for Christ today? What can I do today that would look out for others more than myself? And we all have a long way to go in that, that area, trust me. But I think that's really what, what is important. Having that self-sacrificing attitude. It's not about what religion you're putting on. It's not about how many Bibles you have or what kind of clothes you wear to church or how you dress or how many times you come to church. All that stuff is just legalistic garbage as far as I'm concerned. Give me one person who's sold out for Christ, who wants to live for him daily. And boy, that's, that's, that's more than a lot of churches are filled with. We got our schedules, we got our work, we got our families, we got everything. Everything comes before Christ, it seems. And it's easy to do that. We all fall into that trap. But here, Judas was so clothed in hypocrisy that not even the disciples knew what was going to happen. Well, then we come to verse 26. And here he has this, we call it the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. It was definitely the last Passover. And it's important to understand that because the Passover signified something that happened in the past. All right, a, a, a sacrifice that happened. 
Well, when Christ came, he was the Passover lamb. So there's mixed reviews on whether you should even celebrate Passover anymore. Because if you are, you're, you're kind of, I mean, I understand the symbolism in everything, and there's different beliefs on that. But I think as Christians, you know, if you want to understand the Passover and things like that, that's fine. But I've heard of Christians celebrating Passover, thinking somehow they're becoming Jewish or whatever. I don't know what they're, what they're doing. It's okay to understand that and do it maybe as a symbolism thing, but we don't need to do that as religiosity in our lives. We don't need to practice that anymore. Christ was the lamb, and he was sacrificed once for all. And I think it's it's important for us to understand that. So here, they're midway through the meal, and it's very important you understand that this happened before they got to the Passover part of the meal. They hadn't eaten the lamb yet. They took a break, they did the foot washing thing, now they came back, and during that time period, somewhere along that line, Judas was kind of let out of the room. And that's very important to understand, that Jesus was not going to allow Judas, who was a hypocrite, to sit there and partake of this last meal with him. He gave him every opportunity up to the point where, you know what, it was beyond Satan entered him and he, he had to go. And you ask, well, is Judas held responsible for that? Sure he is just like we're held responsible for our actions. You say, well, wasn't that set up by God? I mean, if God had all this arranged and poor Judas, I mean, he's just going along with the program. No, Judas did this of his own free will. God didn't force him to do this. Our mind can't get our brains around that. How does man's free volition and God's sovereignty go together? I don't know, but they do. I mean, sometimes when we're getting the kids ready for bed, we'll say, you know what, you, you know, learned early, you don't ask them, hey, do you want to go to bed? I mean, that's the last thing you want to ask a, a young child at bedtime, right? Because what are they going to say? No. So a good way to do it is, hey, you want to read a story before we go to bed? So they know, okay, we're going to read the story, then we're going to go to bed. Usually it's a little easier, all right? Well, it's still their choice. They can say, no, I don't want to read the story. But generally, they don't. They always say, yeah, I'll read the story. Let's read the story. But it was their choice. And yet, I threw it out there. And somehow, that's a kind of a flawed illustration. But somehow, that's how God does all this together. I don't know. It's hard to understand. But here, now they come to the point where Judas basically is out of the room. He's gone. Says verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples. This is the last supper part of it. He said, Take, eat, this is my body. We just need to stop here for a second because there's a lot of misunderstanding about what Jesus is saying here. Think about Jesus' teaching. As you, as you understand what Jesus taught about, think of the different things that he taught about. What did he call himself? He called himself the vine, right? He called himself the door. Well, here he holds up this thing and he says, this is my body. It's, it's symbolic language. I mean, you wouldn't think that that little piece of bread that Jesus was holding up was literally his body any more than you would say, hey, where can we find some grapes on you, Jesus? You're the vine. You got some behind your ear there? Where's the doorknob? Is it on your chest? Is it on your belly button? Where's the doorknob? You said you're the door. 
I mean, that would be ridiculous. Well, it's the same thing when, when people come to this and they say, oh, well, this literally, he li- did this literally. And there's some different theological beliefs concerning this. And I kind of listed them there, and you can go over them in your own time, in your outline. But one of them, actually, in the Roman Catholic Church, the church in which I was raised, they believe that the priest, that's why they have an altar in the Catholic Church. We don't have an altar. We just have a platform up here. This isn't any special podium. It's just a thing made of wood. But theirs are always marble, granite, whatever, gold everywhere. And you walk in there, and they got things smelling, and it makes it just seem bigger than life. And the priest takes this little wafer called the Eucharist, and he holds it up, and he lifts it up above his head. And he calls down a blessing from God. And literally, what they're doing in the Mass, that's why they have a Mass. We don't have a Mass here in our church, because we know that Jesus Christ was sacrificed once for all. The priests actually take this wafer, this pretty big wafer, actually. They get bigger ones than anybody else. I never understood that as an altar boy. I was always bummed out. We get the little tiny ones, and they get these big ones, you know. They actually tasted pretty good in our church. Ours are kind of stale sometimes, to be frank. But it's just a symbol, okay? But he would hold this Eucharist up, and he would call down a blessing from heaven, and they believe that literally that, that wafer turns into the body of Christ. That's what they believe. And then he brings him down on the altar and he sacrifices Christ anew, again, for the, sac- for the sins of the people. That's why he's called a, what? Priest. You know, he's the, the guy in between the common people and God. That's why he wears the special robes and all that stuff. I mean, it, it's really kind of a crazy understanding of what Jesus was really saying here. Because he wasn't saying, here, gnaw on my finger, this is my body. That's not what he's saying. That's cannibalism. Okay, that's frowned upon. That's not good. But the Catholic Church believes that the priest literally turns that wafer into the substance of the body of Christ. And they have certain rigmarole they they give you when you when you take one of those wafers and say well it's not a piece of flesh it's still the wafer when it melts in my mouth i mean it's not literally the blood that i'm tasting of christ because they believe that happens too well there's different views we we hold to view number three that it was a memorial and that's what jesus said do this in remembrance of me okay in other words i want this i'm going to take your last passover meal the last passover that ever was held legitimately by the way was this last Passover. And he transformed that into the Lord's table. That's why it was so important that he have this meal with his disciples. I mean, think about it. If you were going to die the next day, I mean, yeah, it would be a little uh, pressing. You might have some other things to do than get together with your buddies and have a meal. Okay? It wasn't looked at. It was very important that Christ do this with his disciples. And so when he says, take, eat, this is my body, he's using it as a symbol. And he says in verse 27, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they would pass away, drink it, all of you. For this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And there's a lot of theology in here. We're going to touch on this just in a couple minutes. But I tell you again, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine, because he was going to die the next day, until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So he speaks of the bread, the symbol of his body. He speaks of the cup, the symbol of his blood. 
And then it says simply in verse 30, they sang a hymn and they went out. All right, that was over. Well, when he broke the bread, does that mean that it was some kind of a a special thing? You know, that, uh, I mean, some churches believe the breaking of the bread symbolizes Christ's breaking of the body. I mean, I probably have even said that on occasion. But you know what? It's not really because Christ's bones weren't broken. His body was definitely beat up. He was literally a bloody mess hanging on the cross. And I just left my phone on. Sorry. I don't know why. The Lord said, turn that off, but it was too late. Anyway, (laughs) that was really weird. That's never happened to me before. So he took the cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. Remember, Judas isn't there. He's not there at this place. Now, I want you to focus in quickly here on a couple of doctrines that are very important that we just cover quickly. First of all, we, we looked at last week, and we're not going to go into it in detail, the substitutionary atonement. You have to understand that this meal that we celebrate, this supper, this memorial that we do once a month, it's, it's in memory of something. It's in memory of Christ's death in our place. All right, we're not just celebrating his death on the cross just to celebrate his death on the cross. No, we should understand as a Christian that he died in my place. He died literally in my place. When he died on the cross, he was dying for Steve Converse. He was dying for Mario DiCaro. He was dying for Ambika Converse. He was dying. You know, that's, that's the thing. We think sometimes, well, he just died for everybody. No, he didn't. It was very personal. And, and that should make your salvation special, to think that Christ gave up his life, not just for the whole lot of us, but for you. For the thief on the cross, he did. And that's the interesting thing with God. I mean, do you ever think about it? When you're praying, there's probably millions and millions of other people praying to God, and yet he hears your prayer. I mean, aren't you glad that you have a God of such capability that you don't have to get in some line you know, and wait, and wait, and wait, and wait next, you know. I mean, aren't you glad that you have a God who saw your need? That you were so desperately in need that he knew you couldn't fix it. You couldn't just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and say, okay, well, I'll just die for myself. No, you're not perfect. It needed to be a perfect sacrifice. Aren't you glad that Christ set up a system of substitutionary atonement that somebody else, the Christ, can pay for your sins? And in verse 28 there, it talks about the forgiveness of sin. It's the whole reason why he died. For the forgiveness of sins. If Christ didn't die, our sins would not be forgiven. And you have to understand, all the sins of the Old Testament, those sacrifices, they didn't forgive sin. They just looked forward to the cross forgiving sin. The blood of sheep and goats can't do anything. That's important to understand. It's only the blood of Christ that can forgive our sins. And this is what he's having them understand at this point. Apparently they got it because you can jump over to Corinthians and find the same language and everything. Somehow they were able to hold on to this. They understood it. We needed a substitutionary atonement because we need our sins forgiven because we're all Sinners. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. 
And then thirdly, he speaks here of particular redemption. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, think of universal redemption and think of the opposite. Universal redemption says everybody's going to be saved because Jesus died for the whole world. So if Jesus died and paid the penalty for everybody's sins, then everybody's going to heaven. So if that's the case, then why is there a hell? Why does the Bible speak against that? Why does the Bible say that certain people will go to hell? So in verse 28, you see here, he kind of defines it. He says, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for everybody. What's it say there? For many. For many. For the forgiveness of sins. His redemption was particular to those who would put their faith and trust in him. Well, who are they, you say? Well, those are the, the people that he chose before the foundation of the world. That's what Ephesians says. Some people don't like to hear that, but that's what it says. You say, well, if God's got it all worked out, then why should we even do anything? Because he commands us to. He tells us to go out in the highways and byways and share the gospel with those who have yet to, to believe. Well, what if they're not chosen? It's not our problem. We're just to give the message. We're, we're just the waiter. We bring the meal to the table. That's all we do. If people refuse to eat it, it's not our problem. It's, it's the chef's problem. We're just bringing the meal out. And we have to remember that. That God has definitely set apart certain people for salvation. I mean, that's a, 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 a truth clearly taught throughout Scripture. You can't get away from it. And yet that in, should no way, in any way, hinder our efforts to evangelize the world. Because that's what we're told to do. But please understand that Jesus didn't die for everybody. He died for the church. He died for many for the forgiveness of sin. Well, what does that accomplish? Verse 29 tells us. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it with who? With you. Who? Who's you? Those who are following him, his disciples. Judas is gone. Until the day I drink it in my Father's kingdom. Well, what does that tell you? That should tell you that, you know what, I am secure in Christ. I don't care what is going on in your life. I don't care what kind of circumstances. I don't care what's going on in your mind. You are secure in Christ as a follower of him. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And he says it right here. I won't drink this again until I drink it with you, my followers, in my Father's kingdom. Do you know what happened to every one of these disciples? They all turned away. They all fell by the wayside. They all ran after their idea of what was supposed to happen fell apart. They turned their backs on Christ. Did that change their security? No, not at all. The only one that was lost was Judas, and he was never saved. He was never saved at all. So you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, when you celebrate the Lord's table, I trust that you'll see not only the sovereignty of God and you'll see God working in and through that, but you'll also be reminded of those things. That it's Christ that died in your place. That he died because your sins needed to be forgiven. And he died particularly for you. And that you are secure in that salvation. 
Not because you come to church. Not because you read your Bible. Not because you say all the right things and dress the right way. No, it's because Christ saved you. Because he knew that you needed a Savior. And when you came to understand that, you cried out to him and said, Lord, save me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all that's needed. Turn from your sin. You turn to Christ. He'll hear that prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, ask that you would just uh, continue to mold us and make us into what you want us to be. Father, we thank you for um, this picture, this memorial that you've set up using the Passover meal that was celebrated for thousands of years before this. And it ended in one night on that Thursday night, the last meal you had with your disciples. The next day you were taken to a cross and you were sacrificed as the Passover lamb for the, the sins, forgiveness of sins for many, for all those who would put their faith and trust in you. Lord, I pray for everybody here in this room right now. I pray that they would ponder their own salvation, that they would stop and make their salvation sure, that they would know without a doubt that they're a follower of Christ. We all go through ups and downs. We all live on the mountain peak and then fall down in the valley and go back up to the mountain peak. That's just part of the Christian life because we're caught in this body of flesh. But Lord, our desire should be to serve you each and every day. To somehow die to ourselves each and every day. Look out for the interest of others more than ourselves. That's the lesson Jesus taught. And if we're doing that, we're doing it on a somewhat consistent basis, we can be assured that our salvation is secure. Because we know that it's you who's doing that through us, because we can't do it. It's a spirit that works through us. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. Father, I pray for anybody here who's yet to put their faith and trust in you. I pray that they would see the truth of which we speak. That they would understand that they're a sinner. And without a Savior, they're lost and doomed to eternal hell. Father, I pray that they would cry out to you this morning, sincerely from their heart. Be merciful to me, a sinner, Lord. Save me. Help me to believe in Jesus Christ. Help me to believe in what he did for me. Pray you draw them to yourself as you promised to do. We thank you. And Lord, I also pray for Will and Crystal and the kids as they go back this next week. I just pray and bless. Pray you bless them and as they travel back to D.C., keep them safe. And we just thank you for the uh, wonderful time we've had with them as they've been here. And just pray that you would uh, continue to bless them and their family. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.